Good morning, Mercy Hill Church. My name's Brad. I'm one of your elders, and it's really good to be with you this morning. I want to take just a moment before we jump into Scripture. You can, you can grab a Bible and turn to John chapter 6. Before we look at the Scriptures, I want to take just a moment to address the murder of George Floyd this last week. And I, want, I think it's very important that spiritual leaders speak to this issue in a time in our country where emotions are at a point of boiling over. And it's important that leadership comes uh, not from those who are most violent in the streets on either side, but that we would look to Jesus as the one who offers peace. This last week I've been very saddened as I've seen and been reminded of the way that people of color have been mistreated in our country since the very beginning, and that has continued. Here in our city, through practices like redlining that Bancorp South was fined for just, just a few years ago, and this is a very complicated issue that many people would seek simple, quick solutions for. And the truth of the matter is that there are no simple, quick solutions. And so I would call, particularly for my Caucasian brothers and sisters, um, I would call for us to be very quick to listen. And that we would allow, before we talk, that we would allow just the sadness of what we have seen our brothers and sisters of color experience and continue to experience, that we would allow that to sadden our hearts and that we would see the, the depths of their reality. And for my friends of color, for my sons of color, I would say to you that what a deep sadness that I experience that you are treated in a way in America, you're treated in a way that's different because of the color of your skin. That we would pray that righteousness might roll down like mighty waters. That we would seek to protest peacefully and to do all that God commands us to do in order that every person would be seen as a human who is made in God's image, who is treated equally. And so church, would you join me in this time of sadness, in this time of reflection, in this time of listening, and in this time of seeking to be obedient to all that God calls us to do. Let me pray for us. Father, we are reminded during times, like the times that we have experienced this week, that we live in a broken world. Social media and phone cameras enable us to see that broken world far more closely than we've ever seen it before. But there's really nothing new under the sun. We continue to experience the brokenness that has existed for all of, all of time. Ever since Adam and Eve chose to turn away from you. And God, today, as we're reminded of inequality, of racism that still exists, 
Father, we pray that we as your people would be quick to pray for your peace, to pray for equality, to pray for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done for all people of all colors. God, we pray that we at Mercy Hill might not be so quick to react in a week or in two weeks, but God, that we might build our lives on your love, just like we've sang about, and that through the gospel that is expressed in our lives, in our values, in the ways in which we live, in the relationships that we embrace, in the friends that we call a spiritual family because of Jesus, God, may this community paint a small but significant picture not of our good works or our love, but of your love. A gospel love that transcends skin color and culture and geography and that brings all men, women, and children to the foot of the cross. That there is no one that's too far gone because of Jesus. So Father, may this community give a reflection of what the kingdom of heaven, just a small reflection of what it will be like as we seek to love others as we've been loved, to love others as we would love ourselves, and to do justice, and to seek peace, and to walk in obedience to all that you call us to do. And it's in Jesus' name that we would pray. Amen. If you would, grab a Bible. And turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. As you're turning there, we're going to begin looking at verse 22. But I wonder if there's ever been a time in your life where you've come to know someone who is a, a follower of Jesus. Someone who is maybe a, a Christian or even a pastor. And there's someone that you have grown to respect and to know and to love. But over time, you have a chance to really get to know them. Not just uh, what they look like in front of the curtain, but you get to look and see them just a little bit behind the curtain. You get to see who they are personally. And you've been disappointed in that process. I wonder if any of you have had a moment in time like that where you see that who this person claims to be outside the curtain, when you go behind the curtain, that there is a lack of authenticity in their life that would cause you to wonder, what do they really believe? What is their faith really like? It's interesting as we look at Christians, not only across America, but all across the world, and we ask the question, what does it really mean to be a Christian? Because it would seem that so many people will associate certain agendas with Christianity. For instance, in order to be a Christian, it means that we would vote a certain way, that we would vote red, or that we would vote blue, or that we would attach a Maybe not a political agenda, but a social agenda that leads to a political agenda. Or there are groups that would attach particular moral agendas to Christianity. There are others who would say that 
what it means to be a Christian is that it means to be prosperous. That if we come to know Jesus, that we will gain health and that we will gain wealth and a certain level of prosperity in this world. And that Christianity leads to that. The problem with with all of those agendas is that Jesus is going to address each of those agendas in the passage of Scripture that we are studying today. I've entitled this message, True Faith That Lasts. And if you've ever wondered, what does true faith look like? What does it look like to really be a Christian? Because it seems that there are Christian groups that would seek to attach all types of agendas to Christianity. What did Jesus really mean when he said, follow me? Today we're going to look at a passage of scripture that answers those questions. And they're very important questions, particularly for Christians. Particularly for Christians in the West. It's relevant for us today because Jesus seemed to have his harshest words for religious people. And that's you. If you're watching this live stream, you are a religious person. You are, you've made a commitment to gather at a particular time, in a particular, every week. And that makes you in some way religious. And Jesus seemed to have his harshest words sometimes for us. For the religious, those who sought to make their faith simply about what was physical and what was personal. Today we're going to see, and this is the big idea for today, we're going to see that satisfaction only comes when Jesus is the focus of your life. Satisfaction only comes when Jesus is the focus of your life. Today in John 6, Jesus speaks to a huge crowd. Of potential followers. And he shows them that his kingdom is physical and spiritual. That his kingdom is now and not yet. And it begs the question for us. Do my prayers, do my requests reflect just simply my present needs in my physical world? Or... Are my prayers and my requests being shaped according to God's agenda? And according to His kingdom? And is Jesus in control of my life? Let's look as we begin reading through this text. And we'll begin in John chapter 6 in verse 22. Grab a Bible and follow along with me. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. A little bit of context in this passage. If you remember, we're studying John's gospel. John was Jesus' closest friend. He was the man who was was the closest to Jesus. He was his best friend. And John is writing about 50 years after Jesus has ascended to the Father. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been written. And about 90% of what we find in John's gospel isn't found in any of the other gospels. And in the text that we're studying today, if you'll remember, Jesus had healed a paralytic who was laying by a pool 
called Bethsaida. He had healed this man on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he had healed him and he had caused great controversy because the healing had taken place on the Sabbath. The people were so curious of this man who seemed to have miraculous powers that they follow him by the thousands across the Sea of Galilee. Now, imagine this with me for a moment because we've become so accustomed to the feeding of the 5,000 that we forget how miraculous this is. Imagine with me for a moment that if it were modern day times, Jesus has healed someone in Millington. And people in Millington have heard about it and they followed Jesus all the way to the FedEx Forum. And Jesus, there's so much excitement that the FedEx Forum is packed out. That's about the size crowd that Jesus fed. And Jesus is looking around and all the concession stands are closed down. And there's a couple of hot dogs and there's a bag of nachos. And Jesus takes those two hot dogs and nachos and he feeds the entire FedEx Forum. Can you imagine how the excitement that would be taking place in Memphis if Jesus had done that? He's standing center court. Two hot dogs and some nachos and everyone is fed. There was even more excitement in this day and time. Because every meal for the Jewish people was hard fought. Every meal, it was an agrarian society. So much work went into to food. And Jesus has fed these people so much that they are satisfied. They are content. And that's where we find this story. Jesus has fed the people and they are seeking after him. But, but what we discover as they seek him, we discover that there are many people who would seek after Jesus. But that there are many levels when it comes to believing in God. Many layers. Jesus has fed the 5,000. The disciples have left. Last week we saw where Jesus had walked on the water and met the disciples there on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a storm. And now in verse 22, it's the next day. And the crowd has remained there and they're looking for Jesus. And they can't find him. And they don't understand where he's at. And, and so they, they jump in boats and they go back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they seek him out at Capernaum, more than likely because that was kind of his headquarters. And so they go looking for him, probably a smaller crowd than that crowd of about 20,000, but nonetheless, a huge group of people who are after Jesus. And in this passage, we're going to see a true faith that lasts, we're going to see uh, three points. First, a warning, second, an instruction, and third, a promise. First, we see the warning that Jesus offers to these people. And we pick up in verse 25 and we see that warning. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Jesus offers a warning not only to this crowd that He speaks to in that day, but He, he offers a distinct warning to us today. 
Pay attention. He's talking to religious people like you and me. And he speaks to the danger of pursuing him for personal gain. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, as you think about that, as Jesus offers this warning, what's the contradiction here? Because verse 1 through 15 seem to say that the people sought after Jesus because they saw miraculous signs. Now Jesus is saying, you came to me, you were curious because there were miraculous signs, but then when I fed you, you were satisfied. And now the danger lies in your personal satisfaction. You're seeking me now, not because of the kingdom that I've come to declare, you're seeking me for your physical circumstances. You're seeking me for your personal satisfaction. And it's a warning to us. Jesus sees their frenetic activity. And I don't know if there's ever been a point in time in which there's so much frenetic activity in the life of the church. So much activity with so little meaning as we experience in our day and time. When you look at Christianity... Christianity is not simplistic, but it is certainly simple. Jesus would say statements like, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus would be clear in saying, In your going, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when we look at so much of the frenetic activity that takes place within the cultures of what we call church today, how much of our activity actually reflects disciple-making or even worship of Jesus? So much of it is a worship of our own personal satisfaction that would seek to bring circumstances into our lives to make us happy. And Jesus is warning us against that. You know, there are many ways in which we can claim to know God. But knowing God is not enough. Jesus would say that, that even the demons know that there is a God and that they shudder. But that it's not enough that we would simply know there is a God. Think about it in this way. Uh, there's, a, there's several ways that you could experience marriage. On Friday, Katie and I experienced uh, our 21st anniversary, so 21 years that we've been married, 25 years that we've been together as a couple. Now think about that. On our wedding day, on May 29th, 1999, I could have looked at my bride in the face and I could have said, I do, and if there's ever a time I don't, I'll let you know, and other than that, we're good. And I could have just, we could have walked on in life together, right? That's, that's one way that you could try to do marriage. By God's grace, I didn't do that. We have worked at our marriage. We have uh, sought out to know each other's personalities and to serve one another and to grow in the grace of Jesus together. But both could be called a marriage, right? And there are many people who would say that they know God because there was a moment in time in which they said, I do. And that type of mentality scares me to death as a pastor. For the last 20 years, I have heard people share their stories with me of how they came to know Jesus. 
And I have heard story after story in which individuals would recall a moment in time in which they feared for their life. I remember one individual telling me about a particular car wreck in which they said, God, if you get me out of this one, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And there's no fruit that's really shown in their life after that moment in time. Nothing changes. It's simply a cry for help. It's simply a cry, God, rescue me from my personal circumstances. Rescue me from what's physical in this moment. And Jesus is offering us a warning that says, if that's what you think it means to have faith, be careful. Because if that is your faith, you will be just like these people. You will be. You will be disappointed in God. And you will walk away. Because your expectations will not be met. Because Jesus never promised us a happy life in this world. Jesus never promised that he would cure our circumstances in this world. He did promise that he would never leave us or forsake us. And the scriptures tell us that he will call us to a lot of very difficult things as we follow him. Jesus is saying in this passage that our primary work is to believe. And that word, I feel like, is so overused in the church that we would believe. Because so many people see that as a moment in time that just stops. Just a moment in time where I would believe in Jesus for rescue and then my faith is complete. I think a better way of describing this is that Jesus is saying that our primary work is to Believe in a way that we continue for the rest of our lives to be receptive to the work of God in our lives. That we are walking in relationship with Him. Not working for God. As much as God living His life and doing His work through us as we trust and align ourselves with Him by His grace. In an ongoing relationship. Jesus offers the crowd a warning. But secondly, he offers them instruction. Look at verses 30 through 36. Jesus calls for them to keep coming back to him for satisfaction. Look in verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Jesus is offering instructions to this crowd that they keep coming back to Him for satisfaction. Their response in, in verse 30 and 31. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and, and believe you? It seems that in this passage that they're not asking so much for another sign as they are seeking an interpretation. Jesus, what does this feeding of the 5,000 actually mean? Because 
they are finding someone that they're very interested in following. It would, it would seem that they're seeking Jesus as the true rescuer and, and, and as Messiah because he has met their physical needs and they're ready to declare him king. And Jesus replies to them in verse 35 by saying the first of seven I am statements that we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John. And in these I am statements, Jesus will seek to illustrate to us who he is to humanity as he says things like I am the good shepherd and I am the gate and Jesus in this moment says that I am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst what does Jesus mean he says I am the bread of life satisfaction only comes when Jesus is the focus of our lives. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Some of you are followers of Jesus and you are wondering why you don't experience Jesus in this way. And I want to share with you an illustration that might help you to better understand the false analogy, the false understanding of the gospel uh, that you have. Our, our camera crew is going to have to follow with me today. I brought a ladder. And I should have warned them about this earlier. For many Christians. When it comes to following Jesus. Think of Christianity as a ladder. And the gospel comes to them. Through this declaration. Choose heaven or hell. And that's the first step of the ladder. Choose heaven or hell. Make a decision. Now the problem with this choice, or the problem with portraying the gospel in this way, is that it's a purely humanistic understanding of the gospel. It's a false narrative. Because people would say, choose heaven or hell. And then you say, well, I choose heaven. And so you step up and you say, I have the gospel. And because I have the gospel, then that means that some things are going to begin to work out for me. That Jesus is on my side. And that I have prosperity. And that Jesus, I'm expecting you, now that I'm a follower of you, I'm expecting you to give me a great career. And so Jesus, you provide for me. You give me a great career. And as things work out in my career, then Jesus... You know, I made that decision. I chose heaven, not hell. I chose you, Jesus. And so, Jesus, I'm counting on you. I'm counting on you for a great spouse. Oh, Jesus has given me a great spouse. And the narrative continues. Jesus, I'm counting on you for kids. Jesus, I'm counting on you for a great house. Jesus, I'm counting on you. And we get to the top of the ladder. And there's this moment in time in which we are counting on Jesus to give us all this health and all this wealth. And then we'll make this leap from the top of the ladder into eternity. And that's not the gospel. That's hedonism. That's a self-centered view. In which Jesus simply becomes a means to an end. The gospel is not choose heaven or hell. The gospel is that the kingdom of God is at hand. And I think if we're going to understand the instructions that Jesus gives us to make him the focus of our lives, we have to redefine what the gospel calls us to. And this is the gospel that Jesus calls us to. It begins here, at the top of the ladder, where Jesus began. 
Jesus began at the top of the ladder and he stepped across the dividing line between heaven and earth and he came to us. And he came to us in a time of so much turmoil that literally there were dozens and dozens of Jewish babies who were beheaded because Jesus came to us at the time in which he came. He was so hated that they sought to murder him. And instead they murdered many of those Jews who were just like him. And Jesus came to us in such a way that he was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows. Who the scriptures say was he was acquainted with grief. And he began descending the ladder. And he was a man who, who descended into a life for the first 30 years of his life. Largely unnoticed. Lived a perfect life. He was a man who never had a roof over his head. He never had a place that he could call home. He was a man who lived a perfect life and continued descending. We'll see even in this chapter, by how the end of this chapter, he'll go from 20,000, the FedEx Forum being packed, to, to barely having enough for a basketball team. Only 12 left. Only 12 men who were willing to follow Jesus. He was hated. Hated so much that he would descend even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. That is what the gospel looks like in our lives. That as we come to know Jesus, it's not about this upward trajectory in our personal circumstances and in our physical life. But instead, it's about coming to worship the king of the universe. And having our hearts so transformed by Him that the trajectory of our lives becomes not about ourselves and not even about loving others, but it becomes about loving Jesus. And when the trajectory of our lives is about loving Jesus, then all of a sudden our worship begins to spill over because we see that He is the one who is most glorious and worthy. And we look at the way in which we use our time and our talents and our treasures. And Jesus calls us to examine each of those. And we begin to find great joy and great satisfaction. Not in ascending a ladder in order to gain more. But we actually begin to find great joy and satisfaction in giving it away. And giving away ourselves. And giving away the treasures of this world in order that the glory of God can be revealed in a greater way. The gospel is not about choosing heaven or hell. It's choosing to worship Jesus Christ. And heaven is simply icing on the cake in the midst of all that. And it's icing on the cake because Jesus is the one who is there. And Jesus is the one that we will spend eternity worshiping. Christianity is not a life of moving on up. It's more of a life of moving on down. As we seek to make Jesus known. Jesus says that we will find satisfaction not in ascending a ladder. But that we will find our greatest satisfaction that it will only come when He is the focus of our lives. He ends this text with a wonderful promise. Look at it in verses 37 through 40 along with me. He says to the crowd, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, just 
Put this in context for a minute. This is a crowd who were there simply because they're curious in seeing this miracle healer. They're satisfied because of their selfishness and that they found personal satisfaction in the moment in what Jesus has brought to them and filling their bellies. And Jesus is going to look at them with such grace and such mercy. He's going to look at these selfish, sinful people that they are and that you and I are. And this is what Jesus is going to say. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Do you hear the promise that Jesus offers? Listen to the work and God's will that He mentions here. The work that He is called to do, He says, is to give life. That's the work that, that God the Father has called Him to. To give us life both now and in eternity, as we focus our worship on Him. And he goes on to say that the will of God is that none should be lost. And this is a mystery to us. How is it that we as sinners could be chosen by God and that we could choose Him? One theologian has described it in this way, that, that as we, if we would think of heaven as a place with a gate, that we would see a banner above that gate and outstretched upon it would be the words, whosoever will may come. And as we walk through that gate and as we look back, on the back side of that banner would be written the words, chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. How do those two truths come together and work? It's a mystery. It's the mystery in the fact that it's not determinism that, that Jesus has simply determined what will be, but that He has elected us and chosen us because of His love, not because of our work, but because of Jesus' work. And at the same time, that we have been given an opportunity to believe. And we can rest in the promise that Jesus offers us. In verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on that last day. What a wonderful promise. That the last day of our morality, of our mortality rather, that God would raise us up to give us continued life with Him. That's the promise that Jesus offers us. I wonder today if you are where you are as you claim to believe in God. I wonder where you are in ascending or descending this ladder. I wonder what it means as, as you think about following Jesus, believing in Him, finding satisfaction in Him. Have some of you sought to climb this ladder and you're really disappointed how Jesus hasn't come through for you? The gospel never promises that Jesus is going to solve all our physical problems and all our earthly problems in this world. The gospel declares to us that Jesus is with us, that he has forgiven us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. 
And the gospel reminds us that Jesus is the only one who satisfies, that he is our greatest treasure. Are you seeking to make Jesus the treasure of your life? Do you see him as your greatest glory? Do you put do you find your worth in him? Are you seeking to find your worth in this world? Are you seeking to find satisfaction in things that are temporal and things that'll never satisfy? Jesus must be the focus of our lives. Pray with me. Father, thank you for true faith at last. Thank you that that comes not because of our own work, but because of the work of Jesus. God, I pray that this text, especially for religious people, God, I pray that this text would, would cause us to examine our lives, to reflect upon what we pray about, to reflect upon uh, what we seek, to, to reflect upon, um, God, what we seek out. And God, that we would examine do we seek to be in control of our own lives? Or God, do we seek your control? God, do we seek to listen to you and to walk in obedience to all that you would desire in order that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done? God, would you give us faith to believe that we will find greater satisfaction not in the glories of this world, but in the glories of God, would you give us through your spirit, would you give us power to walk in obedience in order that we would honor you, that we would make you known, that you would be worthy as we look at how we live our lives, as we examine how we give ourselves away through our time, our talents, God, our treasures, as we walk in obedience to all that you've called us to do. Jesus, thank you for your example. May we follow you wholeheartedly. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray.